The following audio is from Maranatha Chapel, located in San Diego, California. For more information about Maranatha Chapel, please visit www.maranathachapel.org. Okay, so let's begin with Matthew chapter 5, verse 8. Where, this is where we had left off last week. And so, verse 8 says, blessed. Jesus is giving, and that's the first word of his message, blessed are these. And he begins to give the, the Beatitudes. He is commanding us, these are the attitudes of the kingdom of heaven. He's commanding us to adopt all of these attitudes. It's a command from the king, from the mountain. Adopt these attitudes. Why? Each one of these Beatitudes is a gateway into the experience of heaven. It's a gateway into the glory of the Lord. So if you want heaven, if you want the glory of the Lord, you want more of the Spirit of God in your life, these are the gateways. So blessed, oh, how happy, Jesus says, are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. That is an amazing one. So I'm going to just do this, the first life lesson, um, and we'll just put it as this way. The bliss of a pure heart. Is that up there? Where is it going? Boom. Okay, the bliss of a pure heart. Um, also, I wanted to uh, throw this in real quick. So when Matthew, when he writes, he talks a lot about the kingdom of heaven. When you read some of the other gospels, they start talking about the kingdom of God. And sometimes you're, okay, is there a difference between them? And actually, there are some theologians who have made this whole you know, this, this is the kingdom of heaven, and then here, this is what the kingdom of God is. I want to share with you something um, that I think would be very helpful, especially from the Jewish background, right? Matthew is the first gospel writer. He was trying to reach, basically, firstly, a Jewish audience and reach the 12 tribes of Israel as Jesus came to bring the gospel first to the Jews, then it would spread to the Gentiles and around the world. Well, in a Jewish mindset, um, they, you know, because God said, my name is to be honored. When God revealed himself, you know, he came from the heaven of heavens, and he literally came on the top of a mountain uh, in the, the days of Moses and in the book of Exodus, and it was scary. You know, there's no other way of describing it. I mean, that, what, a, what a wild, unique generation that those people that were in the wilderness they could literally, you could take your kids and say, hey, there's God on the top of that mountain. It looked like a cloud, but it wasn't a cloud. Uh, it looked like lightning, but it was more than lightning. The sound of thunder, but it was the voice of God, as well as the, the trumpet. And the ground was shaking beneath their feet. They were scared. Like, Moses, you go talk to God. We are afraid. And it's interesting, in Exodus chapter 33, verse 20, when Moses said, show me, I want to see your face, God told Moses, you cannot see my face, for no man can see my face and live. <laughs> if you saw God, you know, you would just obliterate, you would just be gone. And, and so how interesting then, here comes the Messiah, here comes Jesus, and he's listing all the gateways into the kingdom of heaven. And they're the blessings. Blessed, oh, how happy. With bliss, divine joy are those who are pure.
pure in heart, for they shall see God. What an awesome thing that we could see. How many of you want to see the face of God and not die while you're at it, right? So originally, uh, what does this word pure mean? Originally, the word pure meant cleaned, like a pile of dirty laundry that you put into the washing machine and you wash it and it tumbles around and you remove all of the filth and the dirt and the contamination and then it is pure. In other words, the word pure means purified. It's been purged. It's been scrubbed. It has been cleansed. The same word used for corn would be it's corn that has been sifted and cleansed of all the husk and the chaff. So again, it's a process that brings it into purity. So Jesus is saying there is a process of purity that can happen through me that can bring human beings to the place where they can see God. How awesome. The word pure also means unmixed. In other words, if you have a cup of wine and, and it's pure wine, it means there's not other juices and other substances in it. Or if you have a glass of water and you want to say this is pure water, it doesn't have any other you know, things in it, no metallic taste or anything. It's pure, unmixed. So Jesus is saying, blessed are the pure in heart. They only want to know God. They have no other mixtures, no other gods. They're not mixing up a brew of other beliefs and other religions. They are pure in their love and devotion to the Father and the revelation through His Son, Jesus Christ. Blessed, oh how happy, divinely happy are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. But when you think about it, being pure in heart seems impossible for us as human beings to attain let alone to maintain. Um, So if we can only see God if we have a pure heart, humanity is in big trouble. We need need God's grace. We need Jesus. And I think the whole point of Jesus' Sermon on the Mount is that the only way you can have these wonderful, marvelous, glorious, divine, heavenly things is you're going to need to be purified through me, your Savior, me, your Lord, me, the one who will do for you what you cannot do for yourself, because I, as the Savior, can wash you, I can cleanse you, I can remove your contamination, and I can remove your sin, and I can remove the dirt, and I can present you faultless before my Father in heaven. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Okay, let's look at verse 9. We go on to the next one. And this one in verse 9, he says, Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called the sons of God. Now, peacemakers literally bring heaven to earth. They literally bring heaven to the earth, and therefore they become the sons of God who dwells in heaven. Blessed, oh, how divinely happy are the peacemakers, well, in Hebrew, Jesus would have been saying, oh, how happy are the shalom makers, because the Hebrew word for peace is shalom. Everybody say shalom. 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 (laughs) Okay, turn around and say that to one another. 
shalom. <laughs> okay, I'm going to just share this story just because it's second service. I didn't share this before, but it just popped in my head, which is always scary. But anyway, so, you know, we go to Israel, we go on these trips. <laughs> and uh, so, uh, you know, there's everywhere you go, there's the young Israeli soldiers, you know, and, and they're very young, and, you know, they're very handsome. And uh, so, anyway, we had this one young lady. I'll leave her anonymous. But she was, she was just standing there, and I could see her eyes getting bigger and bigger as these Israeli soldiers. They just walked by, and, and she, you know, nobody was paying attention. And she just went, shalom, baby. I was like, oh, my gosh. And we heard it. We heard it. The rest of the trip, man, we were just shalom, baby. Okay, well, anyway, anyway. Where was I? Peace, oh, yeah, peace, shalom makers. <laughs> oh, gosh. Oh, gosh, you guys. Why did I share that? I probably shouldn't have, but, but it makes you laugh. Now, I notice here the blessing. This blessing is not merely on the peace lovers. Jesus didn't say, oh, how happy are the people who love peace. Anybody can love peace. Uh, it's cheap to love peace. And if I may say, there are many, you know, within the culture that, you know, they have bumper stickers and they have signs and they have t-shirts and, you know, I'm a, I'm a lover of peace. But Jesus did not say, blessed, oh, how divinely happy are the peace lovers. But he specifically said, Oh, how happy are those who make peace. Uh, today, there are many troublemakers, but not so many peacemakers. Um, and it's interesting that Jesus' beatitude about peacemakers contradicted something that was happening in the first century among the Jewish people, because there were what were called political zealots. People that were Jews, believed in God, religious, uh, but who said, you know what, we're tired of the government, we're tired of Rome and the pressure that they're putting on us, and we're tired of waiting for what the prophet said. We're tired of praying about it to come. I think we got to make it come. And so they literally got together, and, and they were called zealots. And they said, grab a sword, grab a shield, and when you can, go up to a Roman soldier and kill him. Now, Jesus is speaking into that. Now, here's another interesting thing. When Jesus went to the mountain to pray, Father, show me who are the men. He wanted one man per tribe. That's why there are 12. His initial uh, beginning of the message of the gospel was to the house of Israel before it would overflow to the Gentiles. So 12 apostles was one per tribe. I want to reach my people. As Jesus went and prayed and, and discussed with his father, who do you want me to select? And, he, and they conversed and they talked, and the father uh, gave Jesus counsel on who to pick. So he picks the 12. Did you know that several of the 12 were zealots, political zealots, who believed in taking up arms to bring the kingdom of God on earth? So I believe that Jesus is specifically directing to them and not only to them, but now he started doing miracles and healings and deliverances. So there's masses of people there listening to him, and he's talking to the whole crowd. He is talking to his entire generation. He was saying, that is not the way. 
He's saying there is a better way. There is a more effective way. And he goes, look, once you take up physical arms, you cannot ultimately win that battle. And quite honestly, there's a bigger battle and a more important battle, and that is the supernatural battle. That is the spiritual warfare. And so Jesus was telling his disciples, I'm going to equip you with weapons that are not physical, that are not carnal, that only do, you know, partial good and partial damage. I'm going to give you something that literally can take empires like Rome and bring them down literally upend them. And the, the weapons that he gave are spiritual in nature. They go behind the human faces of the battle on earth to the real battle that is happening among principalities and powers and places of tremendous darkness and wickedness. You have to go into the spiritual realm with a spiritual sword and defeat them and knock them down, that they must yield, they must bend their knee, they must confess that Jesus alone is Lord, and then you can turn empires upside down. So blessed are the peacemakers. Uh, James, the brother of Jesus, says that the peacemaker plants in peace, but he reaps in righteousness. James 3.18 says, now the fruit of righteousness is sown in peace by those who make peace. And then in Romans chapter 12, verse 18, this is a great verse, by the way, a very practical verse for all of us who are Christians trying to live in this fallen, as yet broken world where we're waiting for the kingdom to come, praying for it to come. So let's read it out loud together. If it is possible, as much as depends on you, live peaceably with all men. I love that. He says, if it is possible, which means sometimes it's not possible. As much as it depends on you, you can't control other people, but you can control you. So as much as possible, as much as it depends on you, live peaceably with all men. That's practical. That's real. And that's what the Lord is wanting us to do. So, okay, so a peacemaker, not a peace lover, but it's a step beyond loving peace, which is cheap and easy to do, but it's making peace. How do you do that? I'm going to give you an illustration, and, and this is exactly what this word peacemaker means. I'm going to use the, analyst, uh, the illustration of uh, my own kids when they were little, uh, so when, and basically when they're about that tall, okay? So Annie, my daughter, uh, she's a year and a half older. She's the oldest. So when she was about that tall, I could put my hand, and there's her little head there. And then my son Daniel, uh, I could put my hand on his head right there. Because sometimes Vicky and I would come, uh, you know, you would hear this commotion, and then you hear yelling and screaming, and you hear a little fist going, and there's the two of them, and they're at it. They're with each other. Now, I have to admit, they, I mean, they're pretty little, right? And so you walk in, and the way they're, you know, it's like, how do people so tiny get so angry? You know, it's like, what in the world? And then you go in, I'm kind of laughing a little bit, so I just, I put my head, or my hand on one head, and I put my hand on the other head, and you just kind of separate them, right? But they're still flailing away, and they're hitting my arms, and I'm kind of laughing and jostling around trying to calm them down. But that picture, while I'm getting blows from that side, and I'm getting blows from that side, but I am physically inserting myself to separate, I made peace by putting my, well, let me just say, that's the cross. 
That is the cross, where literally Jesus was on a cross suspended between heaven that when he became, you know, he, he took on our sins, heaven at that moment couldn't receive him, but he was also lifted up on the cross from earth because the world had rejected him. So he was suspended between, and it's like he had one hand going like this from the blows of the holiness of God as he accepted our sin, and then he had the blows from the Romans, and let alone all the others that were abusing him, and he himself made peace on the cross. That's, that's what it really means. Okay, if you want to clap, you can. Just go ahead and say yes. You're, what you're saying is, I see that, I get that, and I'm glad that we can see the picture, but, but now I want you to think about, so what does that mean? Lord, if you're calling me to be a peacemaker, uh, you know, most of us like to watch. We're peace lovers. But Jesus is saying, my sons and daughters, they get into the midst of the ugliness and the battle and they go like this. They take blows maybe from both sides, but they impose themselves and become peacemakers. Oh, how happy are the peacemakers, for they shall be blessed of God. They shall be called the sons of God. Okay, let's go to verses 10 through 12. This is the last beatitude we're going to look at this morning. And starting in verse 10, he says, blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. And blessed are you when they revile and persecute you and say all kinds of evil against you falsely for my sake. Rejoice and be exceedingly glad, for great is your reward in heaven, for so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. How does, if you actually start living by the Beatitudes and following the Sermon on the Mount and acting like a Christian and a follower and lover of Jesus, what is the world's reaction to these kinds of people? Persecution. The world doesn't like people like that. Now, why wouldn't you want and like someone like that? Number one, because when someone walks like Christ as a child of God and a son of God in the Spirit of God, it's very convicting to people who don't know how to do that, number one. But it, it, all, it agitates them. It brings out within them, why are you, know, who do you think you are? Are you holier than thou and whatever? You may have done none of those things, but that is going to be the reaction. And so if you will notice, none of the character traits described in the Beatitudes are, are valued really in our modern culture. We do not give awards to and now the most pure in heart, yay, you know. We don't have Oscars for, and now the most poor in spirit. Envelope, please. It doesn't exist. And yet this is exactly uh, what is eternally rewarded from the kingdom of heaven. And what does Jesus go on to say? He says, he adds uh, insults and spoken malice into what it means to be persecuted. We can't limit our idea of persecution to only physical opposition and being thrown literally in jail or tortured, which is happening to many of our brothers and sisters, and the world is not worthy of them in many parts and places of the world. 
But Jesus also added that even when you are verbally insulted, when there is spoken malice and hatred and demeaning and belittling and accusing and categorizing and despising, that's legitimate. That's real persecution. And Jesus, it didn't take long for these words of Jesus to ring true to his followers. Because shortly after Jesus ascended up into heaven, early Christians heard their enemies say all kinds of nasty things about Christians and falsely. Did you know, and I'm going to just go through a real quick list of what early Christians were accused of. Number one, they were accused of being cannibals, cannibalism. Why? Because they had this weird meal where they ate this bread and they said it was the flesh of a guy and then the blood of a guy. They said they're a bunch of uh, cannibals. Secondly, they were accused of immorality because they had weekly what we would call a potluck, but they called it an agape feast, a love feast. And the irony was that uh, you had different pockets of people coming together and they were all feeding one another and taking care of one another. And they said they're just immoral. It's weird. It's like all these weird people coming together and they have no reason to come together and they just love each other and take care of each other and share whatever that they have. Thirdly, they were decried as revolutionary fanatics. They said, we know they're up to something. They're going to they're gonna revolt against us. And so Rome was like, we better kill them before they come kill us, even though Jesus had said, blessed are the peacemakers. They were also accused of splitting families because sometimes one believer would get so radically saved and their life would so radically change, and a Roman would look at his spouse and go, who are you? Where did you come from? You don't serve the gods anymore. You're a nutcase. I'm done with you, and walk away. They were splitting families, though those families would remain loyal if their spouse accepted them and would try to win them to the Lord. But they were accused of splitting families. They were accused of treason because they didn't honor the Roman gods or participate in emperor worship. This is hard for us to imagine, but they literally, the Caesar was a god that you were to worship, and they did not do that. And lastly, they were accused of being atheists. You go, that's kind of weird. Why? Because they believed in thousands of gods, and Christians only believed in one. So in comparison to them, it was like, they're basically atheists. They only got one. But he's the great god. He's greater than all the gods. So what did Jesus say? Because there's always a surprise when you really genuinely get born again and saved, and you begin following the character traits that the Lord said, and you get this very strange reaction from the world. What are we supposed to do with that? Jesus told us this. He said, rejoice. Literally, what, what that word rejoice, Jesus said, leap for joy. He said, start leaping for joy when they start persecuting you. Why in the world would we leap for joy when they start persecuting us? He says, because you have just been given pre-confirmation that you are headed toward the kingdom of heaven, that you really and genuinely are saved, that you are born again, because that's the way they treated the prophets all through the centuries. It's like you're getting an inside award like, yeah, you're coming to heaven. You're one of the sons and daughters. The kingdom of God has come upon you. As they treated the prophets, as they treated Jesus, you're now in that realm of being treated like the Lord and like the prophets. It's pretty, pretty amazing. So let's talk for a moment about the Day of Atonement. 
before we share together in communion. Um, I, I wanted to share this with you that some of our uh, Jewish brothers and sisters believe that, uh, you know, these seven dates that are called the Moedim, they're divine appointments, seven of them annually. They, they are holy convocations, which means they're rehearsals. And it's kind of like a day timer where God said, I'm going to show up. The creator of the universe, I'm showing up on these seven dates every year in Jerusalem. Now, some of our Jewish brothers and sisters believe also that as these days are so holy that God would bring his own presence. He said, I'm going to be there. I'm going to show up. Whether you come or not, I'm going to be there. If you want to meet me, come. But they believe that these seven dates are not only for the earth and honored and remembered here on earth, but that they are also celebrated in heaven because heaven knows about Jesus and, and they fully know that on Passover he was crucified so that with every one of the feasts there's an, there's an echo in heaven. Heaven knows that those days are so special. So w- there's a thing called uh, symphonic resonance. So we have this acu- acoustic piano. So if I walk over here real quick and I go to uh, middle C and I play that middle C. If I had another acoustic piano over there and I hit that middle C, guess what? The middle C on that other piano with nobody around or sitting there will start vibrating. It's called symphonic or harmonic uh, resonance. I believe then that even today as we are, I, I think this whole weekend there's been tremendous celebration in heaven, around the Day of Atonement, remembering this is the day that Jesus, the Messiah, died on the cross, paid for the sins of the world, and opened the doorway to heaven for all of humanity. And that as you and I, we're just entering in to the party that's already going on in heaven. Isn't that cool? Now, also think about this. The fall feasts start with the Feast of Trumpets, and then in the Jewish uh, way of looking at it, from the Feast of Trumpets is like wake-up call, and then you have 10 days of before um, the Day of Atonement, and they're called the 10 Days of Awe. They're called the 10 Days of Awe because they believe, I'm sharing with you what the Jewish people believe, that every year, annually, on the Day of Atonement, God decides whether or not to write your name in the Book of Life. And so it's kind of like Uh, you know, the end of the year uh, spring cleaning, only it's in the fall, that you want to repent of all your sins, and you get 10 days to do that. And then you're just hoping that you have confessed all of your sins, and all of your sins have been uh, covered so that your name gets written in the book of life. And then you go through that annually. Now, let me just say, I think it's good annually to go through a kind of a self-spring cleaning, confess your sins, and get right before the Lord. But I will say this, when your name has been written in the Lamb's book of life by those who are in heaven, it stays permanently forever and ever. Hallelujah. It stays. But now here, what happened on the Day of Atonement? Very, you know, simply, let me just say this. So the whole nation is very nervous. It's a, the Day of Atonement called Yom Kippur, You've heard about the Jewish people, Yom Kippur, the holiest day of the whole year. That's why they're so scared out of their minds. Is my name going to be written in the book of life? And by the way, that's reality. In the New Testament, it talks about 
If your name's written in the book of life, you get to go into heaven. If your name's not written in the book of life, you don't get to go to heaven. You get separated from God for eternity. And it's all back to us. If you want in, the way and provision has been made. But you got to choose. Jesus said, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come in. So we have the opportunity, but he's already saying, I want a relationship with you. And that's why I left heaven. That's why I came. That's why I did the miracles and the healings and deliverances. And that's why I died. And that's why I rose. So I've done everything. I want a relationship with you, but it takes two to have a relationship. You got to decide you want one with me. Yes or no. And amazingly, God honors your decision that you make, whether you want a relationship with him or not. But he says, I'm knocking. And I want that relationship. Well, on the Day of Atonement, they, they have two goats. One goat is taken by the priests into the temple and sacrificed, and its blood is shed because it takes blood to remove the sins of the nation. But there is a second goat, and to this goat, the high priest comes with all of his high priestly garments, which were really a remembrance of Adam in the Garden of Eden and the glory that was in Eden. So the high priest comes, and he puts his hands on the head of the second goat, and he confesses into the goat's head all the sins of the entire nation. And that goat is called the scapegoat. Isn't that interesting? We have this expression that's used by people and publications and writings and books that's in our culture. It was a scapegoat. It comes from the Bible from a literal goat that the priest would confess all the sins of the nation. That second goat wasn't killed, but it was taken. Now that it took all the sins confessed onto its little fuzzy little head, it's taken out into the wilderness and then released and, until it's, they want it to get lost and disappear. And there's literally priests along stations going out into the east of the wilderness. And when it finally physically disappears, so the priest says, I can't see the scapegoat anymore, Symbolically, that meant, since it had been all, taken all of the sins, the sins are removed and cannot be seen anymore. The blood has washed and cleansed them, and the sins can't be seen. So he gives a signal all the way back, ultimately to the high priest in the temple where the whole nation has gathered there on Yom Kippur, and he gives the sign to the people, the scapegoat has disappeared, our sins have disappeared, the, la- the, the goat has been sacrificed, and we are forgiven. And the whole nation just erupts in like, whoo, you know. That's what the Day of Atonement is all about. Have you ever wondered why did Daniel pray three times a day facing Jerusalem while he was in Babylon? The temple had been destroyed. There was no temple. And, And Daniel's in Babylon, but he faced Jerusalem, and he he prayed, and he asked God's forgiveness. Why three times a day? Because the sacrifices in the temple of blood were three times a day. Daniel was honoring that by blood we are washed and cleansed and that we are forgiven. So in closing, read with me Hebrews chapter 10, uh, verses 12 through 14. Because this is what Hebrews is kind of bringing to all of us, you know, uh, that are now in the church an understanding of what happened on that day when Jesus was crucified. Let's read it out loud. But this man, after he had offered one sacrifice for sins forever, sat down at the right hand of God from that time, waiting till his enemies are made his footstool. 
For by one offering, he has perfected forever those who are being sanctified. Oh, how I love that last verse. For by one offering, he has perfected, purified, cleansed, purged, made holy forever those who are being sanctified. Oh, man. This, I'm telling you, is the most powerful, most powerful thing in the universe is what Jesus did for us on that day that he atoned for our sins. We get to have communion now. So let's bow our heads. Let's get into an attitude of worship. I want you to go before the throne of God. Jesus said, as you do this, remember me. Remember what I did for you. Remember how much I love you. Remember my sacrifice. Remember my broken body. Remember that I shed my blood. Remember how much I love you that there is nothing that I would not do for you. I've already done everything. I've shown you. If you ever doubt, does God love me? Does God care about me? Think of the cross. Go immediately to the cross. Game over. Argument over. Proof. We can never doubt it. So those passing out communion, come on down. And we're going to give you an opportunity to pray. Because, look, this is, this is like the Day of Atonement. This is a holy, sacred moment. You're in the presence of the living God right now, the same God that trembled the mountain under Moses. So we are there before that same cloud of the glory of the Lord. And so uh, for those who maybe you don't know if you're in a right relationship with the Lord and you've not been walking with the Lord, you're backslidden. You know, maybe you knew God at one time, you walked with Him, you believed, but you've been living in the world, you've been living for yourself, you've been indulging your flesh. You know, I, I, I don't, the Bible does not comfort people who have, are living careless lives spiritually. It gives no comfort to them. Um, and, and it basically, it, it, you know, Jesus said, look, there'll be many that, hey, Lord, remember me, yeah, I did this, and we did that. He goes, you know what, I never knew you. I don't care what your good deeds were or what your good works were, or even if you healed people, this and that, but I never knew you. It's a relationship. And maybe the reason you're here today is that you need to, you, you are saying, I need to, what can I do? I feel conviction. I feel the Holy Spirit. It's kind of a trembling inside. You know that you're in trouble. And you know you have been dishonoring God. And you're saying, what can I do? Then recommit your heart and life to him now. Pray this prayer with me now. Refresh your relationship. Maybe, I don't know whether you were saved or not. Most importantly, it is that you know that you're trusting in him now. And maybe there's someone that's never, you weren't raised in the church, you have no background of this, but you've been drawn by the Lord or drawn by friends or you've been listening to things on the radio or hearing things or reading things and you're, you're now saying, okay, I get it. What must I do to be saved? This is it. You're going to say a very simple childlike prayer. And like I said, Jesus said, I'm, I'm at the door of your heart. God's always been with you. Jesus has always been with you, but that's not salvation. There has to come a definite moment in time. He's knocking, meaning I want a relationship, but even though he's God, he won't force the door open and force himself into your life. Now, other gods and religions are quite aggressive. Not Jesus. 
You have to open the door. You have to make the choice to invite him in. It takes two to have a relationship. And if you will do that, we'll pray right now. And if this is the first time you've ever prayed and asked Jesus, salvation is given to you 100%. You can't earn it. It's a gift. He gives you salvation. Then you begin a relationship of sanctification and growing and walking in his holiness and obedience with him. Thank you for listening to this podcast from Maranatha Chapel. If you haven't already, please subscribe for weekly messages. Feel free to share this podcast and join us for our weekend services held Saturday evening or Sunday morning. Visit our website at www.maranathachapel.org for more information.